podcast, we have our friend Sarah Murray, who we know from San Francisco Stanley, and she is the founder of a company called Curie that started as a natural deodorant brand and, as we'll hear, has grown quite a bit since then. Tough to get. I actually think that this was one of the best episodes, maybe the best episode that we've recorded so far. Yeah, I was. All the episodes are, are good, but I was kind of like more edge of my seat on this one. I, I don't know if it's just because we have some background as entrepreneurs or people kind of close to the origin of Sarah's company, Curie, from the beginning, having been closer, I should say, from the beginning. But I think she did an amazing job of very slowly kind of walking us through her progression from someone who just did something because it was a job being a CPA to finding something that she really cared about. And then the real rawness of what it's been like for her as an entrepreneur, obviously plenty of success, but some of the challenges of almost the day to day getting beat up in a, in a way of facing rejection and some of the vulnerability that comes with putting a product out for people to experience and touch. Yeah. And what I appreciated is she mentioned she's very much in the weeds every day of her business, but I actually thought she did a really great job of telling the narrative of kind of the higher level story, the why and kind of what she believes in uh, that seems to fit with her brand. So I thought she did a great job kind of traversing the, the details of her business with the higher level story or narrative. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the way she discussed failure specifically and how it was something she was super afraid of and actually getting started with Curie. But as we kind of heard about towards the end in talking about some of her biggest deals and successes, that actually, that, fa- that failure and that fear of failure has driven her to get to where she is now. And I think it sounds like she's also built a much healthier mentality around it. So it, it only seems like this company and Sarah herself are on a, on a pretty impressive trajectory. Absolutely. Well, with that, let's get to our conversation with Sarah Murray. Ready, break. like to welcome in our guest this week, Sarah Murray. Sarah, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, such, such a pleasure. I know we just got to reconnect a few weeks ago at a, a mutual friend's wedding, and it just seemed like such a natural fit to have you on this just because of how dynamic a person you are and some of the amazing things that you're working on and doing, and so really excited to learn more and learn more about you as, as a part of it. Oh, thank you. Um, I know it was, that was such a nice surprise seeing you at the wedding. And I've, I have been listening to the podcast and I'm really excited. That's so great. Any of the episodes with, with people you, you, you know, any of our, our mutual friends. I listened to the Laura episode um, and then I just saw today you guys posted uh, an episode with Marissa, which I want to listen to. Nice, yeah. Laura, Laura's pretty popular. I've I've, I've heard a lot of people who've reached out to me about uh, listening to it, but 
I hope she doesn't hear this because we don't need her her head getting any bigger, you know. <laughs> we shouldn't tell her that she's very entertaining on podcasts. That, that, that she's a, that she's a podcast star. I, I, I'm I'm afraid she already knows it though. So, um, well, I want to think start... Laura is a Laura as a mom of two boys is like my favorite version of Laura so far. I mean that it like she was what... destined to be a boy mom. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And what Stanley asked her at the end about overrated, underrated, the content of your Instagram after having kids, I just, that was kind of everything wrapped up for me. That was a great question. That was a great question to wrap it up with. Well, I wanted to start with, I know we're going to talk a lot about Curie, your company. So maybe just before we even get into anything, it'd be great to just hear your kind of explanation for what Curie is and, and we can start there. Yeah, so my company I started a little over two years ago is called Curie, um, and we sell clean personal care products for humans in motion. So that started with a aluminum-free deodorant, um, started because of my own journey of not being able to find anything that worked for me, um, being just a generally sweaty person and wanting to use better products and cleaner products and you know aluminum-free deodorant but tried everything, nothing worked. So launched my company, um, bootstrapped it. It was very much a side hustle for the first year. Um, You know, the whole living room floor, like shipping orders, nights and weekends, um, total side hustle. And it's kind of blossomed into a full-blown brand that I now work on full-time and have a team and employees and um, now we have five products and we're about to launch our sixth product. That's, that's so incredible. I mean, Thank I you. remember when you first started it and people were just excited that you had a thing to sell. And obviously many of our friends wanted to support you in any way that they could. And just to see how far it's come, obviously from a very far away sort of perspective that I have is still super impressive. So thank you. Uh, I mean, it's, to just, just hear more about it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely didn't plan. Uh, people are always like, Oh, you have this finance business background. Like what was your business plan? I was like, mm, I didn't have one. <laughs> like, I probably should have planned a little more, but I, um, I really just, I never would have guessed that we'd be where we are today. And, you know, actually selling in real stores and, you know, having all these cool partnerships and thousands of customers. Like I really never planned for it to become this. And I think that's what, that's what really makes, I think the brand special is that it's, it really started as my passion project and out of a personal need and kind of just grew organically. How does that, that organic growth, how does that impact how you feel almost in a day to, on a day-to-day basis? Like, does it feel, is it more enjoyable because it feels in some ways like it wasn't planned or does, has it sunken in that this is your life and your job and that there's, I don't know, a seriousness to it that maybe didn't exist in the beginning? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to answer this honestly and not sugarcoat things. Like it definitely running a business, whether it was this organic passion project or, you know, something where you created a business plan and raised venture capital funding for, like, I really think eventually it 
every business when you're operating and scaling turns into a grind <laughs> to an extent. Um, you know, I'm really passionate about it and I love our products and I love our customers and I love what our brand, what Curie represents as a brand and I'm proud of it. Um, it very much is integrated with my life. Um, you know, the humans in motion thing is creating products for people who are on the move, on the go, active and need products that can keep up. And that's really how I live my life. So it is, um, it is definitely helps when times are tough that I really am passionate about it. And it really, this feels like my baby, but on the flip side, there's kind of the, the downside of being that intertwined with the brand is that I tie a lot of my identity to it. And so it's, no matter what, no matter how well your business is doing, like there's always going to be the, there's always going to be lows, like every business, you know, even the Ubers of the world that looked like it was just all uphill uh, or up, you know, up into the right. It, right. It, there's always, there's always good times and bad times. And I think it's hard Growing a business is hard no matter what, but I think it does make it a little bit easier when you're like super passionate about it. Yeah, and and I, and I don't I don't mean answer. for this. Yeah, no, that that's that's a great answer, and I and I don't mean for this whole podcast, by the way, to just be, hey, tell me about your business. But I, I do think that as someone who, you know, had this idea, started it from nothing, and has built it to what it is today, there's I, I kind of want to start there because I feel like there's more for me to know about Sarah the person through this lens of how you've approached this, how you've done things, how you've worked, worked through different problems. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely has changed who I am as a person, like doing this over the past two and a half years, like who I was before and who I am now is completely different. I think it's really changed me. Um, wow. So it is, I think, an important part of my own personal, you know, growth as a person. What, what was the Sarah before and what is the Sarah now and what are the, differences the biggest differences um I think I mean there's there's many layers to that I think first of all running a business you know launching multiple products during a global pandemic you know we launched last year in Nordstrom Bloomingdale's anthropology this year um I launched on QVC and we've gone on air six times this year. Um, I've wow. gone on, literally gone on air on QVC from my living room where I'm sitting right now. Um, We're on set. We're on set right yeah, now. Yeah, you're on my set. You're looking at my set right now. <laughs> um, we went on, you know, I've gone on QVC multiple times this year and really honed in on how to sell and be dynamic on air. And we've sold out multiple times. Like all of that stuff is what I think like an MBA or like even more than an MBA, like a PhD <laughs> in business that I didn't have before. Um, so I worked, as you know, I worked in venture capital before. So, and before that I was a CPA. So I had a good like kind of business background where, you know, as a CPA, you learned all about um, accounting and, and financials and cash flow and all that important stuff. And then in venture capital, I got to meet with startups all day and learn, you know, the do's and don'ts and what makes a business successful. But I think I thought I knew so much more than I did. Um, and then starting my business, I, I kind of just like, there's like some quote that building a business is like, what's like, you probably know what I'm talking about. The quote, it's like building a business is like 
flying an airplane and like building it on your way. Yeah, that, that's that's what Reed, Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, likes yeah. to say, that building a startup is like assembling a plane while you're, while you're flying it. Flying while, while you're you're jumping out of the airplane and assembling a plane at the same time and hoping that it's assembled before you hit the ground. Something yes. like that. Yes, something like sorry, that. Sorry, and sorry, Reed, if we just butchered your quote. I, we totally just butchered it, but you know <laughs> what we're saying. It's it's a work. It's a learning process, and you learn as you go. And that means making a lot of mistakes, and that means also just getting generally smarter about things, like the things I used to say yes to. Uh, a year and a half ago, I would now be like, nope, that's not going to work. Nope, we're not doing that. Um, so I do think like in terms of my business skills, I've gone through a huge growth period where I think I would be way different as an investor, for example, today, because right. I think I, I am a lot smarter now in terms of um, startups and how to build a business. So that's one big thing. Um, it's been the best learning process of my life and the quickest learning process. I've learned something new literally every single day. Um, and then personally, I think I never really like cared that much about what I was doing. And I was always like a little bit lost career wise, maybe not so much when I worked in venture capital, but before, like I got out of college in 2011, I got my CPA license that summer. And the main reason I pursued accounting was because I was good at it in college. That was literally the only reason. I was like, I'm going to, I'm really good at accounting. So I'm going to be an accountant and got my CPA license. Didn't really think about the fact that like, you know, is this the right day to day? Like, is this going to be something I'm excited about or passionate about or in interested in? I didn't really think about that. I was just like, cool. I'm good at it. I'll get this license. I'll get paid well and I'll have a good job. And I would say two months in, I was like, this is not for me. And I think that was a quick lesson in like, I need to be doing something I'm really interested in. Um, like life's too short. You're spending so many hours working, especially as a, as an auditor, like I was working crazy hours and I hated the work I was doing. And it was, how did you, how did you start to think about when, Obviously, you had that realization pretty quickly, but how did you start to think about searching for something that you could be passionate about? Yeah, I was lost for like a really a long time in my early 20s, like basically from the moment I started working in at PwC, which was 2011, until I left PwC, which was 2014. So that three-year period, I it like kind of over, like I, that was all I could think about. Like it was all I could think about. I had a journal. I have actually still have my journal from during that time. I've always like journaled my whole life. And I, if you look at my journal from that three-year period, that was all I was thinking about <laughs> was like, this is not what I want to be doing. I looked at my bosses and, you know, my managers and was like, that's not what I want to be doing. Like what I'm climbing the wrong hill here, but I don't know where to get off. And I don't know what hill I want to climb. I had no clue. And I think living in Boston, 
and going to Boston University, like our my school, my business, the business school that the, my undergrad business program had a big focus on finance and consulting and investment banking. And so I saw a lot of my peers like getting jobs at Bank of America or, you know, Accenture doing consulting. And I was like, I don't know if that's what I want to do either. Like no one seems that pumped on what they're doing. Like, is it possible to be excited about what you're doing? And I think it was partly my dad Just growing the, the up. classic early 20s hero's journey you know yeah I think it was my dad that really got this in my head that because he told me like my whole he hated his job his whole you know okay he didn't hate his job but it wasn't his passion he he worked in um at Morgan Stanley his whole career and he always was like from as a kid it was like do what you're passionate about. Do not just settle for anything. Um, I remember, you know, I was really interested in monkey. I loved monkeys as a kid. He's like, you could go start a monkey reserve in Africa and like, you know, raise monkeys. And he always would like get these big ideas in my head of like things that I could do with my life that um, I would be excited about and passionate about. So I blame it on my dad for putting it in my head as a kid um, that that it's worth it to find something that you you truly care about if you're going to be dedicating your life to it. So, and I'm grateful for that. So I think that was like, as I was trying to navigate what I wanted to do next, I was like, let me just focus on things that I love to do and then like use that as a starting point or things I'm really interested in and can't, can't go to sleep at night because I get lost in reading about kind of stuff. Right, right. And was this, I'm assuming that, that wasn't the type, the type of thing that just naturally led you to say, oh, of course I want to start a natural deodorant company then. But more the, I'm assuming, just knowing your background from when we met as early 20-somethings in San Francisco, that the sort of latter part of your kind of mission statement for products for humans in motion, that almost that type of larger problem was maybe what hit you and then things kind of spurred from there? Is that, is that how so, it happened? So I've always kind of been a tinkerer. I've always had business ideas. Like I always kind of thought, oh, like, you know, I'd look at entrepreneurs. I remember reading about Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx and being like, I want to do that one day. I remember like watching Shark Tank with my mom and being like, I, I want to be on that show. Like, I want to do that. And I think I, the thing that was missing in my early twenties was I didn't think that that was achievable. Like, I didn't think that was possible for normal people. Like I always, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of put on this pedestal and you're like, oh, I could never do that. Like she, you know, got super lucky. She caught lightning in a bottle, like what, whatever it is. I right. never thought that was achievable for me. And so I think the gap that's missing between PwC and starting Curie was my four years I spent in venture capital. I think without that, I probably wouldn't have taken the leap and started my business. Like I needed to learn um, and see that it was possible. And, and to see that it was possible, was that, was that you seeing people who looked like you or maybe had their shit together even less than you did? And yes, exactly. Funded and just like, what, what was it about yeah. that experience that made you go, oh, these people, you know, walk, put their pants on the same way I do every morning? That's exactly it. It was like removing that, that, you know, it was pulling the curtain back and being like sitting with entrepreneurs every day. Like my job, I was an associate, investment associate 
I, my whole job was to bring in new potential investments to the fund. So I spent my whole day talking to entrepreneurs like on the phone or in person um, and met with hundreds of entrepreneurs and I think pulling back the curtain and like talking to these people, asking them questions, hearing their stories made me realize like, oh, like they're not that special or different. And yeah, like you said, a lot of them actually didn't have it all together and didn't really know what they were doing either. Like most entrepreneurs, myself included, we don't know everything. We don't know what we're doing. We're learning as we go. And I think that I I get I got to see that um front row seat to that, you know, entrepreneurs that were kind of learning as they went. And then they'd you know, catch some big deal and then the company would blow up. And it looks like from the outside, this like genius that was an overnight success. But in reality, most businesses are a founder or founders like grinding for years until they figure it out. And um, I think I being able to see that and recognize that and be like, they're not that much, they're not any different than I am. Like there's no reason I can't go out and do that. It really just takes an idea and like the guts to go out and do it. And that I think is one of the biggest things that I had to like get the confidence in terms of my, I personally had to get the confidence and the courage to like go do it um, because that I think is a big barrier for people that have an idea that want to start a business. I would say the biggest barrier is just the guts and the confidence that it takes, the vulnerability that it takes to like go out and be like, hello world, I'm selling a deodorant now. And I'm sure there were tons of people behind my back that were like, Sarah's selling deodorant like what <laughs> uh, even my own family members were like wait are you sure you want to do that like that's weird <laughs> you sure you want to talk about armpits all well, day? I, think, I think part of that is that as an entrepreneur you're making you're making it up as you go mm-hmm. and at the same time there's a disconnect because while you're making it up as you go and you know that because you're spending every day doing just that. At the same time, you're putting a product, some type of product, out into the world for people to experience or purchase or engage with. And so while everything is constantly still a work in progress, there is still a thing out there to be experienced and judged. Yeah. And I actually, I love Brene Brown. And she has this talk. Um, that I listen to often, actually, that she talks about how being a creator is like one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in. Like, and you, even you as like a podcaster, like you are creating and putting something out into the world. And by creating anything, whether it's, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or a podcast host or a chef or a painter, you are exposing yourself to criticism. And it's very vulnerable and scary. And I think um, that that really does stop a lot of people from going out and doing it. I mean, there are many other reasons as well. Like there's well, the easy constraints thing, and all that. But I think fear is, is a big nothing. piece. Yeah. The, the easy, the easy yeah. thing is to do nothing. Just keep working at whatever job you're at and ca- totally. carry on. So what, what was the, the switch for you when you decided – you know what I do? I have reached this critical point where I have enough confidence that I want to 
give this a real shot? I think there's there's so many so many things that led to that. I think first of all, I started Curie um, kind of as a side hustle, which made it a little bit easier for me uh, mentally <laughs> to make that leap. Um, I think quitting your job cold turkey and going and starting a business is one probably not smart if you're not raising money because a lot of businesses take a while. You know, it took us 10 months to get up and running and create our formula and website and all that stuff. So um, I think having a full-time job and having Curie on the side definitely made it easier for me to make the leap. Um, But I think also just the fact that I was creating something for myself definitely helped. Um, I was creating something I wanted and I knew other people wanted and I just had a lot of conviction for what I was doing. And I wasn't, you know, the, our first purchase order I think was $11,000. So it wasn't such a big risk that I was going to be, you know, I wasn't putting a loan on my house or something like that to do, to start the business. It was, it was pretty, I saw it as like, the reward was well worth the risk. Um, and I think bootstrapping it and and running it kind of as a side hustle while I had a full-time job definitely helped me make the leap. But then what pushed me really to make the leap from, okay, Curie's this side hustle, which to be honest, like I think at some point started to limit me a little bit because I would make excuses. I'd be like, oh, well, we're not, you know, I think we did $150,000 in our first year of business. And I was like, well, if, if I had been full-time on Curie, like maybe we would have done 500,000. And I just started to like kind of notice I was making excuses for myself where I was, I was saying like, well, of course we're only sold online and not in retail because, you know, I have a job, like I don't have time to do that. And so once I started noticing that I was making excuses for myself, I was like, I think I would, if I don't put my all into this, um, and I think that's also kind of a protective, going back to the vulnerability, like it was kind of a protective mechanism where I was like, well, this isn't that important. You know, it's my side thing. Um, But I knew that if I didn't at some point put my all into it and remove all those excuses, um, that I would regret it one day. You know, one day I'd be like, what would have happened if I had you know, really put a hundred percent of myself into building this brand. Like what, what could have happened? Could I have built the next, you know, dev or, you know, big generational personal care brand? Or did I sell myself short by never really putting, putting both feet in? Almost like the, the risk flipped the other way. From yeah. Yes, the exactly. Risk, the risk, not the risk of the risk not taken. Yes. Became the scary thing to me. And it was, that was a big personal, like I said at the beginning, like this last two and a half years has been like, you know, business-wise I've learned a ton, gotten my my free MBA. Um, And then personally, I think I've also grown because I realized like a lot of the things that were preventing me from, you know, growing and reaching our full potential was me protecting myself and wanting to not really go all in because going all in is scary 
and it opens me up to additional vulnerability and that's just a scary place to be and I don't have a safety net anymore. And so um, I had to get over that and get over that hump. And once I did, you know, again, I won't say it's smooth sailing. I definitely have you know, a lot of anxiety sometimes and there's scary, a lot of scary things about being a business owner with employees that you're paying and uh, mouths to feed. But uh, I, I'm glad that I was able to kind of overcome the, the mental hurdle of being like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm doing it a hundred percent. And if I fail, I, it was not because I didn't put my all into it. Right. Right. I, I had a very similar experience when starting Handstand as well, where I I made excuses at the beginning where, mm-hmm. oh, this could have been bigger if I was putting all my time into it, or this could have done X, Y, Z if I was putting all my time into it. And then as soon as I decided to put my, all my time into it, it was so freeing because you're just in a, you're then living in the real world where there's mm-hmm. no pretending. And so whatever mm-hmm. you do is the best that you could do. And then you try and do better than that. And that actually is a more honest way or felt like a more honest way to operate because you don't have to tell yourself those stories anymore. At yeah. least that was my experience. Have you ever read the book Shoe Dog? I Phil haven't Nike, yet, Phil but Knight. multiple people have told me I need to. Yeah. I listened to that book. Um, I remember like I think on a plane ride or something when I was trying to figure out what to do, like, should I, should I quit my job? Should I go all in on Curie? Like what, what should I do? And I was listening to that book and highly recommend it. It is the most inspiring book for any like aspiring um, entrepreneurs. But I remember there was some quote and here I am, I'm going to butcher another quote, but Phil Knight said something in it about his decision to to go all in on Nike because I think Nike for him was kind of a, a small bootstrapped operation at the beginning too. And he was like, he said some like very wise quote about like, you know, the, what you said of like the, the opportunity cost of not doing this became scarier than the risk of failure. And that was when he made that decision. And I was like, I got to do this. So I'm, I'm not going to lie. That book did help me make that, that decision as well. I love that. One one of the things you mentioned that I kind of want to go back to was your kind of the challenge that comes with doing this for your own identity, that a lot of part of the brand success is that you've infused so much of yourself into it. But at the same time, I'm sure that also comes with challenges Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, I'm wondering when you've, when you've felt that either in a really positive way or in a negative way. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel that I, I definitely have gotten better. Um, I have a great therapist that I see um, who is kind of a therapist slash, you know, executive coach. Um, she's really like, she's the kind of therapist, like actually gives you advice. (laughs) Uh, doesn't just listen to you talk. So she's been really, uh, instrumental in like shifting my mindset because as recent as six months ago, like this has been a big shift 
recently for me um, that I I used to tie my whole identity to Curie. And when someone would, you know, reject us, when we'd get a retailer that said, no, we're not interested, or when we would have an investor that was like, this doesn't, you know, I don't see this being successful. Like the, that kind of rejection, like felt like such a personal rejection. And I would, it would gut me. Like I would be so, it would ruin my day, ruin my week. Um, I would get really down. And I think like when my energy is down, I think this is of most people, like when your energy is down, like energy is what moves things forward, like in a business, like the energy is like what pushes things and keeps the momentum going. And so as the CEO and as the solo founder of the business, when my energy is down because I'm feeling down, then the business, you can, you can tell, like (laughs) my employees can tell the energy just completely, um, is, is kind of following my lead. And so I was like, I got to do something about this because I can't have the business like suffer because I'm suffering personally. And so started to talk about this a lot with my therapist and um, think about, I think the big thing for me that shifted my my mindset, and I'm, I'm still working on this, but I, I think my biggest fear was always like failure. Like I think I've always been terrified of failure. And I started talking about that with my therapist. I was like, I'm just scared of failing. I'm so scared of failing. I'm so scared of failing. And I shifted the mindset of like, and she told me this. And I remember like crying when she said this. And she's like, you've already won. Like, what are you talking about? There's failures off the table. Like you've, Love that. you've built a business that's, you know, generated millions of dollars in revenue that from real customers, you have employees, you have you know, you're in retail stores, you have, we had just launched our partnership with SoulCycle. We had all these great things going for us. And she's like, you already won. Like, even if you had to shut down the business for some reason, I don't think anyone would ever see this as a failure. And you would, it would be, you know, Sarah shut down the business because X, Y, Z, but it wouldn't be like Sarah failed or Curie failed. And so that uh, is something I've, had to really internalize and remember like failures off the table. It's we are, there's no way at this point that this could be a failure. Yeah. And that's I love that. helped me a lot um, with, with just getting that idea out of my head and, and taking rejection. Um, also, I think just as a CEO, like you get constant rejection, <laughs> like, rejection is not um I think it used to be like kind of this shocking like, oh my gosh oh like it would kill me but I think I've also just become desensitized like you're gonna face rejection all the time um so it does it does kind of flow over me a lot quicker than it used to so that also helps is just experience totally one of the things that I find myself sharing with uh younger startup founders, whenever I chat with them, is just about what to expect with the range of your emotions. You know, Mm -hmm. you could have a conversation that that makes you feel like your business is about to be on top of the world. And then five minutes later, you're like, I'm doomed. Five minutes later, later, nothing works. Everything's horrible. Your business is going to disappear in two seconds. 
and you have to kind of ride the middle somewhere and just so know real. that that's just Tuesday, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I have also like gotten, um, I, and I try to encourage my team to, to do this too, is when, when bad things happen or things don't go our way, like, if it is something completely out of our control, for example, right now there's like a global su- supply chain nightmare that's causing delays with everything. And, you know, it's very challenging right now to run a product business with that. And so I'm like, anything that's out of our control, like, for example, if, you know, our freight didn't arrive on time, like we cannot let that ruffle our feathers. Like the only thing where we should really be mad and disappointed about is things that were in our control. Anything out of our control, I don't care about. Like we were moving on, moving forward, no, no one to be angry about, like, or no one, to, yeah, no one to be angry with. And we really can't let that kind of stuff derail us unless it's something that we really messed up ourselves that we should probably reflect on. I love that. I feel like so much of what you've shared so far is about having the right mindset for being successful. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of just tangible results that you can point to, but hearing you describe some of these principles basically and Mm -hmm. attitude adjustments that you've come to, it's not surprising to me to hear you talk about how you've grown personally, but also how the business has kind of followed that growth. That's a great point. I never thought about that. It is, I think, a mental, big mental challenge uh, running a business. And I think I would bet a lot of successful companies, especially solo founded successful companies, like talk to any of those founders, like they've probably would say the same thing, but it was like a mental hurdle more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you about being a solo founder because it sucks. I don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. If you're listening. You kind of beat me to it because I I feel like for me, just putting my own self in your shoes, I don't think I could do it. I I think it would be, I would be too much in my own head and it would feel overwhelming to not feel like I had at least one peer. And so I'm curious, Mm -hmm. obviously it doesn't seem like that was a conscious choice based on on what you already (laughs) shared, but how how you handle life as a solo founder and and how you how you find those sort of peer conversations whether inside Curie or or outside yeah i think um if i were to do it all over again and you know in the future if i ever start another company i would definitely have a co-founder um someone with complementary skill set uh i think when i started curie though like Again, I wasn't planning for it to become what it was, what it is today. Maybe if I had, I would have gone out and found someone with a complimentary skill set and brought them on as a co-founder. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't, and it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And I, I, I'm not kidding when I say I don't recommend it. Like if you're, if you're gonna go out and start a company, uh, first thing you should do is find find yourself a co-founder because one, like good talent is hard to find and it's expensive. And so finding a co-founder that has a complementary skill set, like I think a great example is Away, the luggage company, like Jen Rubio and Steph, I can't 
remember her last name, but the two founders, the co-founders of Away, one of them was like the creative marketing brain and the other one was really strong operational brain. And like, that's such a great, great combination. So I do wish that I had brought on a a co-founder. But I think what's helped me um, as a solo founder is one, having a great partner, like Josh, my fiance is, is really, I joke, we both joke that he's our unpaid intern because he basically works for Curie. Um, he helps write copy. He comes up with, you know, clever ideas. He's helping me with sales. Like he does a lot um, and helps me a lot with things that I struggle with mentally when it comes to the business. Well, he's, um, so- he, he has, he has stock options through you. So, you know, he, he, he's, <laughs> he's invested. Unpaid, unpaid, unpaid cash wise, but he's, he's, he's invested. invested. He's I mean, we're not married yet. So, um, so, but he, uh, definitely earns, earns that, um, that title. He does a lot for Curie. So having a partner that's really bought in and supportive is great and also helps that he's pretty smart business minded, you know, good decision maker. Um, and then having a really good network. I have a great network of founders of other founders, especially in, in CPG and D2C brands. Like I've connected with so many great founders on Twitter, honestly, that's how I've met most of them, but I'm always not, I've spend a lot of my time networking, having conversations with other founders. Like I have multiple group chats, Slack channels, you know, groups that we get dinner once a quarter. So having other founders to talk to definitely helps. And then who who, who is your, sorry, I just want to ask one quick question there. Who is your ideal sort of mentor person? Basically who should we tweet this episode to? Sarah Blakely. Sarah Blakely. All right. She is my hero. Yeah, you got to remember that. She somewhere. is the reason I'm an entrepreneur. Like she, I remember reading a article, a very long article, like expose that was in some magazine and I was in college or maybe post-college and I tore it out and I like still probably have it somewhere in some memory box, but she was a huge inspiration for me and I, I love her and I would love to meet her and have her as a mentor. Um, but I think also, um, having, we, we, I, like I said, I, we started off bootstrapped, um, $12,000 of my own savings, ran it bootstrapped, ran Curie bootstrapped for the first year, year and a, almost a little over a year. And then we did raise money. So we raised, um, a small, um, round of funding from friends and family and angel investors and having those investors, having investors is like not only great because you get money, but you also get, if you're, if you're deliberate about it, you can bring on really smart people that know what they're doing or have done, you know, have run businesses before um, that can, can kind of be your, your sounding board for, for tough decisions. Yeah, I like that. I, I've also heard a lot about people having this sort of personal board of directors but that's less mm-hmm. about that, that's less of a fit when you can actually have a board of directors of people who are invested yeah. in your in we your actually success. don't have a board of directors yet but uh, my investors are we have some really smart people that have run businesses before some of them are retired and happy to pick up the phone anytime I call and have you know whether it's big 
strategic decisions that I need a sounding board for or you know, HR employee issues that I don't know how to get na- navigate. I think it's re- really helpful if, if if you're raising early capital to bring on former operators or even current operators. Yeah, totally. I wanted to ask you about, you know, Curie has a bunch of really impressive partnerships, SoulCycle, Nordstrom, you, may, you name some of the you know, big retailers and, and brands that you've worked with. And I just wanted to ask about the biggest deal or conversation that you think you've been in. And if, if you felt it in the moment, if you could just sort of describe what that conversation was like, if there's one that stands out. I wish I could tell you because there's one that comes to mind, but I cannot tell you right now. But when it comes out, I'm going to tweet you <laughs> like, this is what I was, what I was allu- uh, alluding to. Um, but we're going on a big TV show. Let's just say that. You can maybe guess Very what exciting. it is. But that Very was exciting. probably the biggest deal, um, biggest like momentous thing that's happened to me. But the one thing that I can talk about, um, I think the biggest was either, I would say SoulCycle and Nordstrom were big for me, um, mainly because, and going back to the rejection thing, Every single retailer that we're in, every partnership, like literally everything, even QVC. Actually, I would put QVC on the top of it. I would say QVC, SoulCycle, and Nordstrom. But every single one of those things started with rejection. Like every great thing that's happened or every partnership or retailer has said no to us first. And I think that's something Isn't I'm like, that ironic? I want the world to know. It's like the none of this just like fell into our lap and none of this just happens like it is it really is just pushing 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 not giving up being relentless and not taking no's as like oh well like that's that i guess they'll they don't like us like and then never talking to them again like every time we got would get a no you know initially when we got a no from nordstrom a year and a half ago or two years ago I was like, all right, put a note on my calendar. I'm going to follow up with her, the buyer, in six months. And I've done that with every every no that we've gotten. I just am like, all right, well, it's just not right now. But in the future, maybe they'll change their mind and I make sure I follow up. And every time that that's happened, every time I've done that, it's worked out eventually. It's really timing. And I think a lot of people take it personally. And I... I I, I highly recommend never letting like a door close like that because it's, sometimes it's just not the right timing and in the future it will be. Well, isn't it ironic that you shared how deep your fear of failure was and that all of your greatest successes came from what were initially at least failures? It is very, very ironic. Yes. And maybe that's what's helped me get over that fear um, is realizing that the rejection, first of all, it's usually not personal. Um, and then second of all, it's, it probably, we'll probably turn it around in the future. Um, and I really try to take feedback and with QVC, for example, you know, we, I auditioned for QVC, got a no, um, they, their feedback and I, when was that? 
this was like sometime in 2019, their feedback was like, you know, your product line is small at the time. I think we just had our stick deodorant um, and your, your brand is just a little too small right now. And I was like noted. Um, we did a brand refresh. We like redid all of our packaging. We launched new products. We were just in a way better position. We hired at the time I, it was just me. And so we hired, you know, operations person and we had customer support. So by the time that we we approached QVC again, like we did have a legitimate brand, a more legitimate looking brand. Um, and we did have like the infrastructure. We had we had a 3PL at that point. We had an operations person that knew what he was doing. So it was it was just the timing was right and we were ready to accept, you know, that that partnership. So I think um, it has been a good lesson and just like just a not not right now. It's not a no forever. And um, the, to answer your initial question, I think the big the big deal, biggest things that have happened that have been very momentous were when we signed our contract with SoulCycle because that was that felt like a really big deal um, in terms of legitimizing ourselves and being you know SoulCycle. I was always a fan of SoulCycle and always dreamed of us like getting our spray deodorant in SoulCycle one day. So that was just really exciting. Um, Nordstrom, I again always been a fan of Nordstrom too. And I always have shopped at Nordstrom and I always kind of dreamed that that would be our first retailer. And when we got the purchase order, the first purchase order from Nordstrom, I actually had just come out of, um, I was in, in Zion with Josh and we had just come out of the Narrows and we had been hiking for like seven hours or whatever, however long we were in there. And we got out of the Narrows and I had didn't have service all day got out of the narrows got service like we sat down at a at a bar or like a pub got a beer got connected to their wi-fi so that i could like check my work email and because i had been disconnected for like longer than i've ever been disconnected from my email and up comes an or in comes an email from the buyer at nordstrom with our purchase order and i was like oh my that was like one of the best moments of my life because I had, was on that high of like coming out of the Narrows and we were drinking a beer. We had like the beautiful sunset and then boom, got our first big retail PO from Nordstrom. So that That's was awesome. Yeah. And then the big, then the other big one and most recent one was, was QVC. The first time going on air with QVC and we sold out. I was like, I broke down crying when I got off air because it was just like, I manifested this. Like I had just manifested it and just put all my attention. I like trained. I treated like my preparation for QVC. Like I was an athlete going to the Olympics. Like I was dialed on my diet. I didn't drink. I like practice, 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 like made (laughs) everything perfect. And then to sell out and have, see that actually happen. Like all the fruits of my labor um, was very emotional and like really probably the best, one of the best moments of my life as well. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's it's not surprising, but it's still so impressive. So Thank it's really, you. you know, I'm, I'm so happy for you just as, Thank a, you. as a friend. I wanted to ask you uh, one question just about actually building 
the deodorant itself because as I was thinking about this, I, you're already laughing because I was laughing. I'm laughing because everyone everyone asked this. So like, okay, because I just imagine, and I want you to correct me, but I just imagine that you're mixing a bunch of stuff or having your scientists mix a bunch of stuff, trying it, and then just asking people around you if you smell good or if you stink. Oh yeah, the sniff test. Yeah. Like people. Sniff so what my what, what was that like? <laughs> people sniff my armpits all the time I sniff my own armpits all the time I sniff other people's armpits all the time I'm like BO and body like sweat is not um, a taboo to me anymore at all um, but that was basically the process you you nailed it I mean I didn't start curie in my kitchen like I didn't I knew that I wasn't going to be able to make the most effective deodorant in the world in my kitchen as a former CPA. Um, so I was at least smart enough to be like, if I'm going to do this, like I need to bring in an expert because I don't know anything about this. So I did some like research, you know, tried different products and like got kind of a general idea of like what kind of ingredients go into deodorant, natural de- aluminum free deodorants. Um, but then I ended up bringing on like a, a team of formulators. Um, we've actually gone through multiple. Uh, we've we've changed our formula like three times since we launched, and we've gotten better and better and better, and have found better and better people that know deodorant and have like dedicated their lives to making deodorant and personal care products. So, finding the right people, teaming up with the right people, um, and then just te- lots and lots of testing. I tried it on myself. Um, I was the first, I was, I'm always the guinea pig. Um, I, I'm my first customer. And then we usually like, we'll send products out to like customers and stuff after our teams tried them um, and get feedback from, from others as well, because your body chemistry is like, it's very different from person to person. Like what works, what works, there's no one size fits all when it comes to deodorant. Like everyone's body chemistry is different. What works for one person might not work for another. And we recognize that. And so testing products on multiple bodies is really important for getting the right, um, getting something that works for as many people as possible. Right. Right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I I just, I felt like I needed to know or else I was going to, that was going to be my regret of of not knowing how an actual deodorant yeah, stick gets developed. Yeah, it's lots of like sniffing your own armpits and asking your friends and family members to sniff them. And I'm and sure eventually some... it becomes not weird anymore. And, and I'm sure, sure sometimes it's pretty it's pretty obvious when it's maybe not working. <laughs> yes, I can I can smell myself. <laughs> well, the the last question that I wanted to ask you, Sarah, and you may know it if you listen to any of the other episodes, was is something that I've asked everyone and I'm hoping that you can just define for me from your perspective, what a life well lived looks like. I knew this question was coming yet. I did not prepare for it. <laughs> somehow, um, you, somehow you didn't treat this like a, Q, a QVC. Uh, no, I st- didn't feel like I was going to the Olympics <laughs> for this. Sorry. Um, what, but you know, it's better off the cuff anyway. Um, that's right. That's right. But this, I mean, having this conversation with you actually has my answer now is definitely going to be way more thought out than if you just asked me that cold turkey. 
Um, because as we've talked, I'm like, oh yeah, that is like, that is important or, oh yeah, I have learned that. Um, so this is a great last question. Um, a life well lived to me is, um, like we talked about, I think doing something that you're passionate about. And I hate the word passionate. I wish there was another word because, you know, sometimes what you're passionate about is not something that you should pursue as a career. Um, but like, for example, I'm, I love painting, but like, I'm not going to pursue that as a career because I actually am not very good at it. <laughs> so I think doing, finding something that you love doing and that you're good at, and then trying to find a way to do that as much as possible, like either as a career or, you know, even if you can't find a way to make it a career, making it a big part of your life. Um, I just think that that like idea of like flow state is very real. Like the happiest moments for me and when I'm like feel the most joy is when I'm working on a task that's like meaningful to me. And I get into that flow state where like nothing else around me exists. And like, it, it doesn't even have to be something as like enjoyable as painting or running or whatever. Like sometimes I even get into flow state when I'm working in an Excel spreadsheet and like putting together, you know, taking our customer lists and analyzing it and stuff like that. Like I just, I think finding something that really, um, that you love doing and and that you're good at and then doing that as much as possible um, is important for the way you spend your time. And then I think also the secret to like living a meaningful life is like being surrounded by people that you love and that love you back um, and people that support you and that you can have meaningful conversations with. Um, you know, being again, being close to my family was so important to me for that reason um, because those people just – the people, you know, my, my fiance, my family, like just lights up my life and makes it worth living. So well, it sounds, it sounds like by, by your definition, you're, you're well on your way to a life. What's well that? I, I was just thinking that quote, um, I, I keep quoting people, but then not remembering the quote, sorry, <laughs> but it's like, it's like, um, the secret to like a happy life or something is like, someone, something to do, someone to love and something to look forward to. And I think that's so true. It's like something to do that you're, you know, like I said, excited about and that you love doing and you're good at someone, you know, people, friends, family around you that you love and that love you back. And then having something to look forward to is, is also really nice, whether it's travel or, or some big, you know, work related, um, work-related project that I'm working towards is always when I'm kind of in my best state. I love that. The world, the world is always getting better. We just have mm -hmm. to keep going. Yeah, exactly. Like That's great. the world will be better in the future. Not yes. quite sure what that looks like, but like having that hope and that doing something every day that's like moving you in that direction is, um, I think important. The future belongs to optimists. I believe that for sure. Well, I'm an optimist, so <laughs> good news for me. Well, Stanley, um, you're up. What what did I forget? So there are two things that I want to follow up on. Uh, you mentioned a few times um, the grind of kind of starting, starting and scaling a company. 
I imagine you spent a lot of time uh, on Curie. I was curious if you had three more hours in the day, what would you spend those three hours on? That's such a good question. You just like came that's, up with that's that. That's why he's on the podcast. That, that's, why, that's why he's on the podcast. <laughs> Can you like come help me interview people? Because that's like a great question. Um, interviewing is one of my skill sets that I'm trying to cultivate. Not a great interviewer. Um, but that's a great question. So if I had three more hours in the day, what would I spend it on? I mean, my my first instinct is like, what work could I do in those three hours that I don't have time for during the day? That's probably not the answer because I spend a lot of my time working. So I think if I had three extra hours in the day, I would allocate it to non-work activities. Um, I think it's, I find it really hard to prioritize myself and prioritize like things that are going to make me feel good and make me more productive and make me feel better. And sometimes I just don't have the time. So that's working out. That's, I love cooking and I love making, you know, some elaborate meal from a recipe. And I love, you know, getting outside going, I'm 15 minute walk to the beach and I don't make time to go there all, all that often. So I think if I had three extra hours in the day, I would like to allocate at least two of those hours to getting outside and, and cooking and, you know, doing or exercising and doing all the things I love. And then realistically, I would probably allocate one of those hours to doing more work. To answering emails. <laughs> answering, clearing out my inbox. I've always <laughs> dreamt of being one of those people that gets to inbox zero at the end of the day. And it's happened like probably five times in my life. <laughs> Um, so the second question I had was, you had mentioned that staying at your, I think it was a VC job at the time, started to become kind of the risk not taken. Um, and I was curious when you were talking about that, if there was anything that you're still protecting yourself from, is there any risk now that you're not taking? Damn, I, uh, yes, for sure. Um, I think there's like a constant battle of, um, self-protection and especially, you know, as a solo founder, I don't have another, I don't have a co-founder to keep me in check um, and help me, you know, think big and beyond my fears. So I think conquering and overcoming my fears is constant in my life um, that I'm going to constantly be working on. And I think nothing has challenged me in my life like Curie has. And so I'm glad that that I'm in the position that I'm in because I have grown a lot from this personally. But I'm trying to think of what I'm kind of holding my back myself back. This is like a therapy session. Like, what am I holding back on? Well, maybe we can do like a second episode in like a year and you can think about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I can't answer that right now. You can answer it. You can answer it with your therapist this week and get back to us. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll tweet you on that one too. Perfect. We can add that Perfect. into like the notes. <laughs> All right. To, to move on to a, a, a slightly kind of faster, less heavy section uh, okay. called overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Um, and you feel free to say why if you, if you want to. Uh, so the first time hearing someone talk about Curie in real life that you didn't know. 
Wait, I'm, I don't understand. The, I'm supposed to say underrated. Or so I'm assuming that's underrated. First time you ever heard anyone talk about the brand that you so didn't Stanley, know. Stanley's going to say a bunch of things, and then you'll just say if it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Oh, oh, got it. Okay. Yes, underrated. So do you remember oh, that first time? So exciting that someone said something positive about Curie. Yeah, that you didn't know the person and you just heard yeah, that, about it. I was just going to say at the very beginning, it was like all my friends and family buying the product. So it didn't really mean that. Like, I'm like, obviously, they're going to say they love it. So I think having strangers buying our products and writing positive reviews and repurchasing is still a thrill to me. Like, I still get excited about that. I can't remember the first person. Um, but I do remember that being like a huge moment when I was like, I don't know this person. They live in Kentucky. I don't know anyone in Kentucky. Like this must be, you know, they're not now you buying do. our products out of, because they're good friends. Like they really want it. So that if you is go to Kentucky, you've got a, you, you've got a friend, in, got Kentucky a friend in Kentucky, but it's honestly, it's still exciting to me. Whenever we, whenever I see like someone that ordered a product or has made 10 orders, like 10 separate purchases. I'm like, wow, like that person came to our website 10 times and bought our products. Like they must really love us. <laughs> it's so it doesn't get old, definitely underrated. Uh, you mentioned, you talked quite a bit about being a solo founder. I'm curious, overrated, underrated on being a female founder or appropriately rated. I would say appropriately rated. Um, I I don't like to, I don't like the term. Like I, I never would like go out and refer to myself as like a female founder. I I wish that one day we get to the point where it's, you're just a founder. Um, there's no distinction. And, you know, seeing a female founder is just as common as seeing a male founder. We're not quite there yet. Um, but I think, I think women are, some of the best leaders I know are women. Um, and I think there should be more female founders. So I, I would say appropriately rated and, um, we need more, we need more ladies. All right. Accounting. Oh my God. Well, so I'm not going to say it's overrated because it is really important. Um, so accounting as a practice, very appropriately rated, uh, or actually I would even say underrated because a lot of people like don't pay enough attention to accounting, especially in the early days of a business. And it kind of comes back to bite you. Accounting as a career for me was very overrated. Um, not, uh, we went over this, not the right career for me. Uh, but I think accounting is very important and I am very happy that I do have like a, a strong foundation in accounting because it's important, especially for running a business that's pretty lean. Um, we have to be really, really like tight on our finances and our accounting and making sure that everything is being properly accounted for. So I would QVC. say underrated. QVC. QVC is underrated. Um, QVC is awesome. They I'm so impressed by QVC as a, as a business and like what they've built. Like they basically, QVC created the art of storytelling for brands. Like they really created this like platform for brands to tell their story. 
And I think that's very underrated. Like that's, that's how they've become so successful. They're, they do billions of dollars. I think they're like second behind Amazon in terms of, of, um, transactions that go through that website. It's QVC is huge and they are very well run and they're very smart and very professional and have created this kind of magical place where brands can tell their story. Following a recipe. Um, overrated. I never follow a recipe. You mentioned you like to cook. Do you mostly? I always, I always riff. I usually I try, I usually go in with good intentions. I'm like, I'm going to follow this recipe. And then as I'm going through it, I'm like, one clove of garlic, try five. (laughs) So So I usually no fear of failure there. No, no fear. I should probably have more of a fear of failure when it comes to cooking. Never too much garlic. Sometimes I overdo it. Uh, Amazon. I'm okay. Do you mean as a consumer or as a founder? I mostly meant as a, as a brand, as a a brand, I would say appropriately rated. Um, I think people are pretty honest about Amazon. It's like, it's great. You do lots of business through it. There's lots of customers on Amazon, but there's, there's downsides to, to being on Amazon as well. And finally, failure. Failure. Wait, uh, is this the? Uh, I'm like overthinking this game. Failure is. <laughs> failure is overrated. Okay. Failure is overrated. That's my answer. Final answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> failure is overrated because, like, honestly, if you think about what you're scared of and you think of the worst case scenario usually it's like not that bad (laughs) that they're like the idea of like okay if if my business idea doesn't work out or if I go up for that promotion and I don't get it or you know go train for that race and I get injured like whatever failure that you're scared of like if you actually think about what would happen if if that became a reality if I did fail in most cases it's like well, so you, you go get another job or you go train for another race or you go up for a promotion next year. There's the long-term impact of most failures is really not that big. So definitely overrated. Love that. And then Sarah, one, one quick final question for you. We'd like to end with a good, would you rather? And a question for you, would you rather have a stick of deodorant that auto refilled itself or a candle that never burned down. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, would I rather have, I would rather have a stick of deodorant that auto refills itself because then our, <laughs> this is me and my annoying like entrepreneur brain. I'm like, then it would reduce the friction of our customers having to come back to our website to reorder every time they run out. (laughs) But it also would be very convenient for our customers if our deodorant sticks could just auto refill themselves. I love it. Well, Sarah, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for making the time this for this. This was we, so fun. I'm like, can we ask more questions? <laughs> <laughs> we can I'm do glad. part two. 
you can do part two after that it. big after that big event that's coming up happens. We we can't we can't wait to find out what what it's all about along with the rest of the, the Curie Curie Nation of, of fans and customers. Curie Nation, that's great. Well, thanks thanks so much. This is this is amazing. Thank you.